0: I have yet to find a verse in the Bible which specifically tells us that God has a sense of humor. And I know that's been a topic of debate amongst theologians for years, and I think it can be easily and readily solved by the fact that we have the very practical answer to this. God clearly has a sense of humor, and we see it in how he blesses us with the children. And being Father's Day, what an excellent day to understand and appreciate this gift. You see God's sense of humor, and it seems like in almost every family, he gives us that one special child who always has to march by the beat of their own drum. Now, over time, I've come to realize that this unique child is what you would refer to as a strong-willed child. Uh, I've seen aspects of that in my own life. And, of course, God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to give my wife and I one special child just like this. And what grinds me so much is he's got a personality very similar to mine and so it's like arguing with myself Uh, the strong-willed child typically manifests itself in uh, acts of defiance and downright stubbornness and that's usually the way in which we interpret it but the reality is these children have a different way of thinking these children have a different way of tackling problems of life and whether your children are strong-willed or not they each are truly a blessing but each both bring their challenges.
1: This is the third time I'm telling you, please put on your shoes.
2: She's inside me, amor.
1: Carrington, you know not to run a nut. House!
2: Got your hands full.
1: I love her, but (laughs) she's really been pushing my buttons.
2: I want to show you something. Open it.
1: Are these? Yep. So these are all the times I pushed your buttons?
2: Oh, heck no. There's not a garage big enough to hold that. No, these are the special ones. How did you put up with me? I learned to translate the signals.
1: Huh.
2: Once you got yourself a personality, You got really good at pressing my buttons. Drove me nuts. Most times you were just being a kid, figuring out life. Like the time you called me up in the middle of the night to pick you up from summer camp. (laughs) Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit that it took so long, but that's when I understood that you weren't trying to frustrate me. Sometimes you were pushing my buttons because you were just homesick or scared or lonely or confused or sad. Once I understood the signals, I learned how to appreciate the buttons. Learn her language. Understand the signals. Meet her there. That sounds hard. (laughs) That's the job, son.
0: This one's from
1: last week. Yes, it was.
0: Well, God bless you, fathers. Um, We always make a big deal out of Mother's Day. I don't know if we dads get as much credit or play, in when it comes to these celebrations, maybe we don't want it, but uh, you've been given an awesome role. You get a chance to represent God, our Father, in the same way in which he relates to us. Hopefully, you can relate to your children as well. The reason why this works out so well for today is the fact that the next turning point lesson we have deals with a very strong willed individual Jacob the grandson of Abraham the son of Isaac he seems to be one of those characters in scripture that could only learn life's lessons the hard way and the truth is we could have picked any number of instances from Jacob's life to fit within this series but interestingly enough this one that I think we're going to wrestle with today is oftentimes not seen in the proper light Nor do we see it to be such a critical time, both in the life of Jacob, as well as in the development of the nation of Israel, but ultimately for the fate of the world. Because there is one truth that I found throughout understanding personalities. God typically will use the strong-willed child to be the kind of kid who ends up changing the world. He did with Jacob. Our lesson is this. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then gave Laban, gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. It shouldn't be this complicated. It should be one plus one, but we're gonna work our way through. All right, the first thing we should probably do is consider the fact that Jacob comes from a long line of liars. Besides his own personality, which he was blessed with, and which sin, of course, had twisted into things it was never meant to be, his gene pool was that of people who deceived and lied. The first example would be his grandfather Abraham. That was our lesson last week, where Abraham is fleeing the land of Canaan because of the severe drought, approaches the land of Egypt, and compels Sarah, gives her absolutely no choice, makes her lie, and telling other people that she was his sister and not his wife. Abraham failed to trust God and God's protection. Interestingly enough, uh, almost exactly the same situation happens a little bit later on in the book of Genesis with Jacob's father, Isaac. Once again, there's a severe famine which hits the land of Canaan. He doesn't go to the land of Egypt. He actually goes to the kingdom of the Philistines. And again, upon approaching this new kingdom, he compels his wife, Rebekah to tell very much the same lie that Abraham uh, compelled Sarah to tell. Don't let anybody know you're my wife. They might kill me to get you. Tell them that you are my sister. We have now a second generation of these great patriarchs who in very specific situations fail to trust an Almighty God. This uh, connection takes us directly then into today's lesson we find that Rebecca is actually the sister of the man Laban of our lesson whom we already have seen is Also a liar and so you understand what I'm trying to get at here is is unfortunately Not only was it within Jacob's personality to trust more on himself than others or in God But he had also had for most of his life example after example of those who should have been putting him on the straight and narrow instead teaching him that when the going gets tough, why don't you come up with your own scheme or your own plan? Case in point, uh, we're getting towards the end of Isaac's life. Uh, He thinks he's going to be dying soon, and what each generation would do would then pass on the blessing of the Messiah to the next generation. Uh, And that's not to be confused with the birthright, where the larger portion of the inheritance would go to the older child. This is a special blessing uh, described for us in Scripture, where the father of the Messianic line would specifically pass on to one of his sons and uh, task him with being the next generation of carrying the bloodline of the Savior. You probably know Isaac had twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and God had already made it clear to Isaac that he wanted Jacob to be the one who carried on that promise. Unfortunately, Isaac favored Esau, and so it was his plan to give that blessing to Esau. Well of course his wife Rebecca uh, knows what's going on and so she feels it falls to her to somehow help God in that situation. And she comes up with this scheme to have Jacob deceive his father Isaac who couldn't see very well. And, And maybe you've read that section of scripture where when Esau's out hunting, Uh, Rebecca prepares food, so it tastes like what Esau would cook for him. And, of course, the boys are different, so she puts the goatskin on his his arms and around his neck so that when Isaac would come close to Jacob to bless him, he would somehow believe that this was Esau he was giving the blessing to. Again, we have another generation, and both mother and father, fail to trust God in those critical moments of time, and they end up deceiving somebody, even their own spouse. Of course, you can imagine Esau, when he gets back from the hunt, is furious with his brother Jacob. And he even exclaims to the fact that he lives up to his name, the name Jacob. And what he's referencing is Genesis 25, the birth of these two boys. Esau was born first, and Jacob was born right after him, and he comes out clasping Esau's heel. That's what the name Jacob means, heel grabber, which is an idiomatic way in Hebrew of saying a deceiver, a liar. And so once Esau recognizes what has just happened, and the Messiah promise was given to Jacob, and there's no going back from that, he says he lives up to his name. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. Now, what scripture records for us is that it was Esau's intention to wait until father Isaac died, and then he was going to kill Jacob. Well, of course, you probably have sons, brothers, who at times are at each other's throat, but maybe never to this extent. Esau is the kind of man, the hot-headed man, the personality type that would have carried through on this. So once more, Rebecca feels she has to insert herself and take over, thinking God can't handle this. And she comes up with a plan for Jacob to flee back to her homeland, Haran and to go to the household of her brother Laban. And that's what introduces us basically to the context of today's lesson because it was at the well of Haran where he meets Rachel for the first time and he falls in love with her. And then everything proceeds from there. What I'd like to do for you is share now the context verses, the specific ones to today's lesson. Now Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. The, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now to really understand, and and this really begs a lot of questions to be answered, there's some hard work we have to do. Part of it is scriptural, um, but part of it is very cultural, and we have to understand that as we read through these verses, we're going to look at them from the lens of our modern day perspective on love and marriage and contracts, if you will. But that doesn't qualify for putting it back into its original context. And So it's certain things that we should make sure we understand. The first is is how these weddings, these marriage were arranged, and most of them were arranged marriages. Once a male's family or the man himself would find a woman that he thought he wanted to marry, basically what he would do is make a contract with her father. Uh, You probably know it as the form of a dowry would be given, uh, or maybe a more accurate word is the bride price. And why I say that's more accurate is because in that culture, as abhorrent as it is, women were considered property. They weren't considered human beings so much in the aspect of their value or worth. And so it was understood between these two families that once a father gave up his daughter to the other family, that would diminish his family. He was losing value. And so either the father of the husband or the husband-to-be himself would reach a deal, would, if you will, enter into this contract with the girl's father and they would agree upon a price. I don't know if it ever dawned on you, but the seven year bride price that Jacob was willing to pay for Rachel is done for two reasons, because it is an exorbitant amount uh, to quote unquote pay for your bride. One is this, he wanted to make Laban an offer that he could not refuse. I think Jacob had already figured out certain things about Laban, how he was also a little bit shady, but he was, in a sense, kind of greedy as well. And so if he offered him seven years of free labor, that's something Laban could not say no to. The other thing is is this bride price that he offers reflects his deep and abiding love for Rachel. Uh, He wanted her to know as well just how much he uh, valued her and how much she meant to him. There's something else, and I'll take you to the end of the contract, if you will, and it's recorded in the last verse of our lesson. What concludes the contract is not the marriage itself, but an act related to the marriage, and that's when the father offers to the daughter who's married a bride dower, not dowry, but dower. This is basically a father giving some of his own possessions something of value to the now wedded daughter, to let her know she meant something to him, she was valuable to him, and if you will, it's the way of saying the contract is fulfilled, everything's done. These are very important points now as we dig deeper into this lesson. There is a moment here where we need to stop and just gather our thoughts and make sure we understand some of the cultural differences. Because the reality is that that culture had it completely wrong. We see that in cultures a lot. Oftentimes they not only get God's way of thinking entirely wrong, but they often get it backwards. Uh, Women are not meant to be property. God didn't create Eve to be of lesser value than Adam. On the other hand, today's culture gets it completely wrong too. Uh, A lot of people, you will hear them saying that both genders, both sexes are absolutely equal. And they are not. You have to understand uh, how God chooses to value each part of his creation. And he doesn't look at it the same way we humans look at it, like a man's more important or a woman's more important. That's not even on God's radar screen. God says both are important. And to hammer this point home, we need to understand not only the design and creation of men and women, but how God has taken this most intimate of relationships and has made it relatable to our relationship with him. So that you understand, we are represented as the bride of Christ. We belong to Jesus. And in no way, shape, or form are we equal to him. And yet, in many ways, in human ways of thinking, we could say he's far superior to us. He doesn't see it that way. He made himself inferior. He humbled himself to the point, putting us on the pedestal, giving his very life to not only pay for uh, our sins, but that's the only act that could bring us into God's family, to bring us back into God's family. And very much the same way the ancient customs of the marriage took place. You left your family of origin, and you became part of this new family. You see, the way God has created men and women is one is not greater or lesser. One is not more important or less important. Each have their unique role, and God gives value to both of them. God doesn't say they're equal. He says they're different, and each will serve the purpose for which God has created them if we understand God's design and how each is meant to function, specifically when those two are brought together in this amazing union we call marriage. Somewhere along the line, that was lost to the ancient culture, and somewhere along the line, unfortunately, it's also in many ways been lost to our present-day culture. Human beings want to determine value and worth when the reality is is that God makes us all precious in his own sight, and he's the one that does the work to make sure that that happens. Now, let me deal with the question that I'm sure has crossed most of your minds. How on earth could Jacob have been deceived, not only in marrying Leah, but then also on the wedding night in this most intimate of situations? How could he have possibly been fooled Now, there's a couple things, again, about the ancient Hebrew marriages that we need to understand and how they're so different from ours, and in many ways, the lesson itself explains this. Uh, Some people think, well, maybe it's because she wore a veil so she couldn't see her face. Truth of the matter is, ancient Hebrew uh, brides did not wear veils. It's a a made up excuse, if you will. The other go to usually is, well, by that time, Jacob was probably drinking so much, was drunk, and didn't even know what he was doing. And again, the truth of the matter is, is that the true celebrating didn't actually take place until after the marriage itself, which now requires a little bit of explanation. Ancient marriages are nothing like ours. They would had no formal service. They especially didn't have any religious service because the religious aspect of marriage was meant to be part of their entire lives. The way it typically would happen is the way this picture represents. The husband-to-be would go to the house of his bride-to-be, the father would bring her out, would present her to him, together they would proceed back to the husband's house, and once they entered the compound in the home, legally they were married. That was the marriage, and it's after that then the celebration would have taken place. There's one other detail that I think is often overlooked, is that the ancient Hebrew weddings were always performed during the daytime. Well, if you look at these context verses, we find that they didn't go that way. Laban controlled the details of this marriage. Jacob wasn't allowed to come and get Rachel. He brought the bride-to-be to Jacob. That also allowed him to wait until evening, nighttime, when this takes place. And so you can understand how two sisters, who were probably very similar in most of their features, how the darkness could cover the one thing that caught Jacob's eye. We talked about this with last week's lesson. Her beauty, the majority of her beauty was in her eyes, those deep, piercing eyes were were coveted in this ancient culture. And if it's very dark, of course, that one item that drew Jacob to Rachel was now taken off the table. And then there's one other element that kind of closes the deal on this. Once Leah is given to Jacob, Laban fulfills the marriage contract by giving this girl Zilpah as her maidservant. In Jacob's mind, not expecting any deception to be taking place, once that gift is given to his bride, in his mind, this is his wife, this is what they agreed to, the contract is fulfilled. Of course, the next morning when it's light out, You can imagine the surprise that Jacob has. This isn't Rachel. This isn't the woman that he worked for. This is not the woman that he loved. This was Leah, the older sister, the one that he didn't fall in love with. And of course, when he confronts Laban about that, he offers some flimsy excuse that, well, it's our custom that the older gets married first. Honestly, it's probably a lie because there's no historical evidence of any form of custom that would fit what Laban is describing. There is, however, a possibility it could have been a local custom, or maybe it was a family custom. But even if that were true, at the time that the marriage contract was made with Jacob, he was obliged to reveal the full terms of that, and of course, Laban never did that. So not only has Jacob come from an entire line of a family of liars, but now he's redoubled that by marrying into that same family of liars. Jacob, the deceiver, is led to experience the fruit of his own labors, the deception. And of course, this is what leads us to this critical point in Jacob's life, if you will, the turning point of this lesson. Because I know maybe what you're thinking, because I've been fighting these thoughts all week. What should Jacob do? Should he be happy and fall deeply in love with his legal wife, Leah? Or should he become a bigamist? Should he sin against God's design for marriage and now also marry Rachel? And, and I had to fight the whole time. But he was tricked. He was deceived. Shouldn't he have had the right to marry the woman that he loved? And after all, pastor, you probably have dealt with this in your own ministry. You know how hard it is to counsel people who don't love each other even though they are married to each other. This is a critical point. This is a fundamental eternal turning point in the life of Jacob. Should he follow what he understands to be the true nature of God's design for marriage or should he once again, much like he's learned from his own family, from his own parents and from his own personality, should he try to figure out his own way through this dilemma and challenge that he faces in life? The sixth commandment would not be etched in stone for many years yet. But the principles of a godly marriage had been long time established. And it goes back to our Old Testament lesson. Jacob could certainly claim, well, legally I was deceived. Laban didn't fulfill the true contract. He would have had all kinds of legal wranglings to annul the marriage to Leah. Or he could have understood that there's some reason why God allowed this to happen. And he could have learned to love his wife. And he could have gone for the rest of his life with that unanswered love in his heart for this woman that he fell in love with almost at first sight. Interestingly enough, there is a reason why of all of the relationships that we enjoy in this world, it is the marital relationship which most closely resembles our relationship with God. And that's the crux of this turning point. There's a few other things that we should know to help us, if you will, jettison some of our own human baggage when it comes to trying to see the good life lesson that God offers through today's turning point. I don't know if you knew this or not, but most of those ancient weddings, even amongst the Hebrew people, were arranged marriages. And the way that they typically would go is, some father decided it was time for his son to get married. Probably sick and tired of him living in the corner of the tent, time for him to move on. So he would go find a wife for her. She would typically sit down with the father of that woman and those two would work out the contract with very little, if no input whatsoever, from the son or from the daughter and all you need to do is read through the history of arranged marriages and actually run the numbers, many of them are very successful marriages. They don't begin with our human concept of love. In fact, that form of marriage has proven to be much more effective and long-lasting than the way that we Americans do marriage nowadays. I'm not suggesting that you go find a wife and make a contract and not love each other, but I'm simply trying to show you that God can work some amazing miracles when we keep our fingers out of the pie. And maybe the best way to understand that is, is God has a very specific one, two, three step to marriage that if we understand the design to it and the beauty of God's creation of this institution, what we would avoid are all the pitfalls and problems that sin has brought into this life and the many things which try to destroy what God has always wanted to be a reflection on our relationship with Him.
3: You come out here to talk about parenting styles?
1: You know, we have a sensitive daughter, Jace. She cries when you look at her sideways, never mind the tone of voice you use with her.
3: Sorry I haven't read as many parenting books as you, but maybe she just needs to learn to cope. Not getting to read a book before bed, it's not the end of the world.
1: You use the same tone of voice with me.
3: Sometimes you cry when you don't get to read your Kindle at night. Me, I'm more of a Netflix guy, so it's really not a... Stop!
1: Okay, just stop it. Everything is a joke with you. I feel like we're not communicating anymore.
3: Okay. This is about us. Oh, you you communicate great. Yeah, with the way you undermine me all the time in front of her and in, in, in front of everyone for that matter. Our our friends, our family, you cut my legs off at the knees and it's emasculating.
1: You do that all on your own, Chase. We're supposed to be rubbing off on each other. We're supposed to be finding the good in one another.
3: Yeah.
1: Just you affecting me.
3: So, what am I missing?
1: I feel like. like I'm the one doing all the bending. I, I know how much I've changed what? over the years, are and are if you can. Are you kidding just... me?
3: You're, you're doing all the bending. You are.
1: You used to. When we first got married, everything was just. So we
3: were hard. different. We were. we were kids. What are you not saying? I'm
1: just saying... You never want to talk about
3: us. (laughs) Well, that's calling the kettle black, isn't it? Coming from the person that makes indirect comments about everything I say and do? Because you're so afraid of conflict? Why don't you just come out and say it? I'm not like you, and that's the problem, right?
1: Well, surely I'm of some use to you. You're not just here for my benefit. I'm here for you, too. I'm just telling you that you could just. And I'm
3: telling you, I'm not your father. (sighs) I'm sorry. I I love you. I love her daughter. I'm not going anywhere. But. I'm not your dad, and I'm being punished for the way he treated you, and it's not fair.
1: Right, so I guess I'm just some poster child for daddy issues, all in one sentence. Congratulations, I'm glad we got that settled.
3: That's not what I said, you misunderstood me. I'm going to bed. We used to assume the good. to we used to see the best in each other
0: I wish I could tell you that I have no clue what that is but since this lesson is honesty I find that I have had far too many of those episodes in my life and in my marriage Truth is, God didn't design it wrong. Truth is, my wife wasn't the problem. Truth is, I failed to understand how God has given this amazing gift. And if we can just wrap our heads around it, it makes so much more sense to us. And it works so much better, even in a sinful world. Because remember, God designed marriage before sin became a part of this life. One of the realities, and it's reflected in this video, is, is that men were created for the gift of respect. Women were created for the gift of love. And I know it should be equal or they should both be the same, but it's not. That's not how God designed men and women. Unfortunately, what we men want to show our wives are respect. And the way we do that is we'll have a fair fight. That's the respectful thing to do. And, of course, women want to show their husbands love. And oftentimes we don't see it or understand it or appreciate it. So if it's never been explained to you, let me uh, explain the design to marriage. What was designed in a very perfect world and still survives even despite what sin has done to God's amazing creation. And and let's start with the question, could I have married the wrong person? The answer simply is no. Now your spouse might've married the wrong person, but you didn't. That was the one whom God brought to you. That is the one that God designed for you. And there's three principles of the terms in the New Testament which explain it. There's different kinds of love, and it's good if we understand the differences. And God designed us first to fall in love with our eyes. That's the Greek word eros. Yes, it's the word from which we get our English word erotica. We see something about a, a person, it, it, it intrigues us, it it draws us in. God says, first and foremost, I will attract you with your eyes. But that doesn't last, especially in a sinful world. And so there's a second step to this, and it comes in the word Philadelphia, filial. Yes, brotherly love. Better to understand is companionship. What first drew us together quickly gives way to a more intense, or if you will, we fall in love with our minds. As people grow to be companions, we understand each other's likes and dislikes. In many ways, we also draw closer to each other in how we feel or think. That's the beauty of sometimes you will see couples that have been married or together for so long, they can communicate without ever speaking a word. I'll tell you, my wife with her eyes can say things that I can't actually say on a whole page of paper. And I'm not just attesting that, my sons will attest to that as well. But they're always done with love. And I understand that now. And ultimately, these give way to the greatest form of love, agape. That eventually, a man and woman, a husband and wife, are meant to love each other in the very same way in which God has loved us. And if you understand the term agape, really understand it, it is the love of choice. Not because the other person deserves it. Not because they've earned it. Not because he or she is beautiful. Not because your minds think alike. It's every morning you wake up deciding, I will love this person because God loves me. That is ultimately the goal of every marriage, to have the kind of relationship with each other that God has chosen to have with us. Interestingly enough, this is what sin has done to this beautiful principle design. Science has shown us that about anywhere from six to 18 months in marriages, the infatuation, the first form of love, typically, if we don't work on it, we'll die out. And I've had people come to me and sit across my desk and go, I don't love him. I don't love her anymore. And they don't recognize what sin has done to their relationship. And so if the question is, should Jacob have loved and faithfully been married to his wife Leah, his legal wife Leah, and put at arm's length his human love for Rachel, the answer, as hard as it is to hear, is yes. And I know. But he was lied to. But he loved Rachel and not Leah. So how on earth can we possibly say that the right thing for him to do in this turning point of his life was to follow God's design? Because scripture has clearly taught us, if not life's lessons have taught us, that the only way to do this right is to follow God's lead and not our lead. The reality is is that God let this happen. And he could have certainly intervened at any point, but he let the deceiver be deceived. The question is why? Why would God do that? Why would he put Leah in that position? Why would he put Rachel in that position? Why would he put Jacob in that position? The simple answer is because he loves us so much. Truth of the matter is, is that Jacob was a strong-willed child. Jacob would learn lessons only the hard way. In fact, you'll see that again and again in the book of Genesis, that something is pretty clear and plain to us and we're banging ourselves on the head and going, why doesn't this guy get it? It's right there. The reason why God felt the need to allow this to take place was because Jacob was now going to be the third generation of the promise of Messiah. You see, it wasn't just his life and his marriage which was at stake. It was the fate of the entire world. It was whether you and I got to go to heaven or if we ended up for eternity in hell. This man needed to learn as the next generation of the people who would deliver Jesus Christ to this world that the only way this is going to work, whether we're talking about marriages, or parents and children, or eternal salvation, is if we follow God's way of doing it. And yet so often we feel this need to interject our plans our ideas because God just doesn't seem to be getting the job done. The reality is this isn't a lesson easily or quickly learned. If you go on in this book you will find that Jacob continued to be a deceiver. Uh, Very shortly after the weddings in those next seven years of working then he started to work for animals. and Eventually Jacob understood how to manipulate the breeding habits of sheep and goats so he started to take most of Laban's flocks. It wasn't just payback for his deception, it was because by nature, Jacob was a deceiver. When it came time to leave the land and go back to the homeland, he didn't have a man-to-man talk with Laban. He didn't sit down and discuss the terms of their departure. He sneaks out. And ultimately, when they finally arrive at the borders of the promised land, once again, Jacob wanted to try and take charge of how this would go, this reunion with Esau, because he knew his brother wanted him dead. And so he spent their light night wrestling with God. Sound familiar to any of us? A night wrestling with God. Because we don't want to see how good his plans are. We don't want to trust that he knows what he's doing, even when he allows the challenges in our life. And the amazing thing about God is he can take all of our screw-ups, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, and manipulate them into things that ultimately serve his purpose. Jacob didn't end up having children with just one woman, but four. Again, God doesn't sanction that. God doesn't approve of that. That is not God's design. But since Jacob was going to make such a fool of himself, God actually used it. And wouldn't you know, it's Leah of all of these women that gave him the most children, seven in all, six sons and the daughter Dinah. And of Leah's children, it would be Judah who would become the fourth generation of those who deliver Messiah to this world which brings us here because your turning point this week won't be having to decide whether should I have a second wife or a second husband. That's not the point of this lesson. The point of this lesson is the same thing that Jacob constantly faced in his life. Do I submit my will and my plans to God or do I think I know more than the Almighty, the all wise? And let's try it my way first, God. And I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I have spent way too much of my life frustrated Because I thought I knew better than God. And when he pointed out to me and made it crystal clear, I didn't. I didn't like that. I am a strong-willed person. I'm very much like Jacob. And it's taken me most of my lifetime to figure out, this just doesn't work. There's a better way. It's God's way. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you. And that's why I included the other passage. Because for the longest time, it never made sense to me. Why on earth would God in one breath have the writer to the Hebrews talk about the sanctity of marriage and in the very next phrase, talk about idolatry, the love of money? And and it's taken me forever, if you will, to connect the dots. The reason is, is because these are comparable relationships. In the same way the human heart was created not to have enough room for two spouses, the human heart was also created not to have enough room for two gods. And God says, I have given you this most precious, special, and intimate of relationships, not only for your joy and your pleasure, but it is genuinely a reflection on where you and God are at. So if you find yourself frustrated with your wife, if you find yourself frustrated with your husband, start with the fact that something in your relationship with God is also frustrating you. And if you want to get to the heart of the matter, if you want to get down to the turning point of whatever relationship you might be dealing with, begin with the one that matters the most. Begin with the one where God agaped us. He chose to love us even though we can't earn it. And we most certainly can never deserve it. I have no clue what turning points you're gonna face in your life this week. But what I have found is how scripture is so amazingly beautiful and powerful and specifically speaks to each and every one of us, regardless of whatever life situation we might find ourselves in. And one reality is true for all of us, no matter what we have to face. Every single one of us has a little bit of Jacob in us, whether we're that strong-willed child or not. And if you have one of those, again, let me say happy Father's Day. You have been blessed. You really have but also recognize the fact that like Jacob, God comes to each of us with this tremendous loving heart and allows these turning points into our lives for the simple reason that he wants us to learn that it is better to trust him than it is to trust ourselves. So no matter what you face in this coming week, hopefully this lesson goes with you and you recognize it is a very simple lesson. As simple as one plus one.
1: Some things that I don't understand. Some things I can't come to grip with. Sometimes I just look out in the world and think, why? Why me, God? Why this situation? Why them, Lord? Why this tribulation? Why? I've been down on my luck for a while. I mean, I don't even have an ace in the deck, just empty hands with no patience that's left. I'm lost in the desert, no oasis, I guess I'm hung out to dry. Lips chapped, feet hurt in this weather, I thirst and I march on hoping to find an answer. Just an inkling of faith in this world full of cancer would be a refreshing drip of water on the tip of my tongue. The fresh cool breeze of Jehovah's lungs is exactly what I need feel so far away I mean God are you really with me do you really care when I cry in distress are you really there your word says yes but sometimes I doubt it but clearly my own path needs rerouting because every time I walk my own way I get lost and even though I'm lost in the desert I now realize He created it, He knows where the water is, He made the sun, His creation is marvelous and He is in control even when I fail, He is faithful even when I fall, He is what I need even when I doubt, He is fresh water in the midst of the drought, He is God and He is King. Lord and gives life to all things. He gives and takes away and sometimes I just need to trust that He knows exactly what He is doing. When I am asleep, He is moving. When I fall, He is choosing to pick me back up with outstretched arms. Nothing that anyone does can separate me from His love because He is faithful. He is true. Hey! Right.